one of my favourite Australian writers is the West Australian novelist and short story writer Tim Winton. Um, well, actually, he's a bit hit and miss, in my opinion. I love some of his other stuff, other bits leave me cold. But one of his stories that I particularly like is a little story, a short story called The Turning, uh, that he published a decade or two ago now in a collection of the same name. It's an unusual story to encounter in a book of contemporary Australian fiction. If you've read it, you'll know what I mean. Uh, it turns out it's quite odd, because it's essentially a fictional account of someone's conversion to Christianity, uh, hence the, the title of the story. Now, the main character is a woman called Raylene. Uh, she lives in a caravan park with her daughters, her two daughters, and a, a violent, abusive partner. Uh, one day in the caravan park laundry, she meets another woman called Sherry, who has just moved into the van park with her husband Dan while their house is being renovated. She expects to hate Sherry based on her first impressions of her. Leafy suburb, country road, briefcase, hubby. But she finds that despite herself, she doesn't. Uh, and uh, begins a sort of friendship with her. A genuine, uh, mutual friendship without condescension. At the same time, she starts to realise that Sherry and Dan have something that she wants. Uh, there is something about their marriage and something about their lives that is deeply, deeply attractive to her. Eventually, when she sees a couple of Bibles open on the dining room, she realises that they're Christians and at first instinctively ridicules them. But the friendship continues underneath the the layers of defensive, instinctive ridicule. She digs beneath the veneer. She discovers that Dan, Sherry's husband, is actually a recovering alcoholic. There's more going on than just the house renovation. Their lives are not as neat and as simple as she had initially thought, but that just increases her respect for them. It's not easy for them to live with the kind of love and mutual devotion that she sees in them, but they do it. Eventually, as she learns more about them and as they introduce her to Jesus and to the Bible. Um, and as at the same time her relationship, her own relationship with her, her partner gets blacker and blacker, eventually as the story comes to uh, a shuddering kind of climax, she has her own moment of turning uh, and puts her trust in Jesus. It's an odd kind of story. Um, it, it's, it reads as something personal, I think, um, on Tim Witten's part, because it echoes, in some ways, the story of how Tim Winton himself was first introduced to Christianity as a boy through the kindness of a rather odd Christian neighbour, um, through a relationship that his father had with a stranger, a man from the local Church of Christ congregation, who kept turning up day after day, uninvited, unasked, to help his dad um, uh, in the most humble of, of ways, and gentle of ways, uh, to help out his dad after um, he had been incapacitated in a, uh, a traffic accident that he'd been part of as the local cop. Underneath both stories, the fictional one and the, um, the autobiographical one, underneath both stories is the passage we heard read from in 1 Peter a moment ago. It's a passage that talks about the, the strange and visible beauty 
of relationships that have been changed by the impact of the gospel of Jesus and about the effect that that beauty, that strange, peculiar beauty has on the people who live around us as in God's grace. They watch us living out the Christian life and hear from us the story that shapes our lives in such a peculiar way. The underpinnings for this whole section in 1 Peter chapter 2, the underpinnings for this next section of the letter are in chapter 2 verses 9 to 10, the concluding verses of the passage that I read just at the end of our first talk this morning, and in chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, the opening verses of the passage that follows, the jumping off point for the paragraphs that follow. Both of them, chapter 2 verse 9 to 10 and verses 11 to 12 of the same chapter, both of them have to do with our identity as the people of God, the people that we've come to belong to in belonging to Jesus. Uh, the people that we've come to belong to as we've come to belong to one another in Him. In the first place, verse 9 and 10, Peter reminds us of our identity and calling, our privilege and calling, as a priestly kingdom as the special possession, the peculiar treasure of God. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were not a people, you're now a people. You had not known mercy, but now you know mercy. Those two clauses, of course, belong together, knit into one another. To not be a people is to be strangers to God's mercy. To find God's mercy is to be made a people. And as we said in the first talk this morning, that experience of mercy is at the very heart of what makes the people of God, the people that they are. They are the mercy-born people. And then verses 11 and 12, he goes on to begin the process in these middle chapters of the letter, to begin the process of explaining something of what that identity, as the once not a people but now a people, once had not known mercy but now know mercy, what that identity will mean for the way in which they and we are to relate to the surrounding worlds, to the neighbourhoods we live in and the workplaces we serve in and the families and the friends and the colleagues that we live amongst. Dear friends, Peter writes, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And instead, verse 12, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice three things about that exhortation in verses 11 and 12. Three things that Peter urges as he speaks to his hearers, uh, the readers of the letter. First, notice the reminder at the start of verse 11, 
of the alien identity, the alien identity that we have if we belong to Jesus. This is not a new idea for Peter and his readers, this idea of being peculiar, strange, out of step, foreign, alien. It's precisely in line with the way in which he describes them and us in the very opening verses of the letter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, as he greets them as elect exiles. Elect in our relationship with God, peculiar in that sense, peculiar to him, special to him, precious in his sight, his special possession, ex, uh, elect in our relationship with God, and exiles, peculiar in that second sense, alien, strange, foreigners compared to the host culture that we've come to live amongst. Strangers in our relationship to the world. Elect. Exiles. Peculiar peculiars. Do you see? God's peculiar possession. Called to peculiarity in the eyes of our neighbours and our worlds. If there is a beauty to the Christian life, it is a beauty that will appear strange, foreign, alien, peculiar to the eyes of the world around us. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles in the world, we should not expect to harmonise easily and comfortably with the values and the practices of the culture that we live in. Whatever culture it is that God has placed us in, that is not what we are promised. In fact, we are promised and taught to expect quite the opposite of that. The identity that we have is, because of Jesus, an alien identity. Some of Peter's readers, of course, used to fit right in. He says elsewhere in this letter, you've spent enough years of your life, wasted years, just joining in with the lives of the people that you were raised amongst, living the lives of the pagans, plunging yourselves into the same dissipation, living according to the same empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You've spent enough of your life wasted on that. You were, once upon a time before you met Jesus, you were normal. You fit it in. And now the painful, costly grace of God, the transformative, wrenching, traumatic mercy of God has wrenched you out of that normality that comfortable deadness, that normal dissipation, that typical futility. And at cost, with pain, with trauma, you've been ripped out of that way of life by an invasion of the mercy of God. And you've been made weird, peculiar, alien, foreign, different. We live in the world with an alien identity. Granted to us at some point in midlife when we turn to Jesus or in some of our cases inculcated into us through that strange and sometimes unwelcome privilege of growing up in the family of the household of God in a family of believers. One way or another we've ended up with our, our fundamental identity is alien. 
And then secondly, look at the end of verse 12. Secondly, we live in the midst of the world with missionary purpose. Our great desire is that the impact of our lives on the people that we know will be to cause them to glorify God. That on the last day, the judgment day, the day when God visits us in judgment, we will see him standing with us as fellow worshippers, as men and women saved through Jesus, glorifying God along with us. Our great desire is not that they'll not notice us, or that we'll manage to escape connection with them and defilement from them, or that they'll kind of approve of us and like us and think that we're not really all that weird and that we fit in smoothly and comfortably. No, our great desire is none of those things. It's bigger than all of those things. It's a missionary desire. Our great desire is that they will stand with us on the last day through the converting and renewing grace of God, glorifying God in Christ with us. We live in the world with a missionary purpose. And you'll see that theme reflected again and again in these middle chapters of 1 Peter. And then thirdly, Peter reminds us our lives are therefore to be characterised by visible goodness. Manifest. Beautiful. Visible goodness. When Peter talks about us living a life in the world that seeks to advertise the glory of God and make his name shine in the midst of the nations and draw people into relationship with him. When Peter talks about a missionary lifestyle, he's not talking about trying to promote Christianity and secure converts by making Christianity look just like the lifestyle of the culture around us. When he talks about reaching out to society, he's not talking about conforming to society or even about conforming to societies of ideas of what is good. He's not talking about culturally determined notions of goodness. He's talking about objectively created by God, written into the pattern and the fabric of the world's ideas of goodness and beauty. Real goodness that is good and precious and beautiful at God's sight. One of the sillier arguments, I think, that gets trotted out sometimes for when people try to make the case that we as 21st century Christians don't have to take the specifics of these chapters in 1 Peter all that seriously, particularly the words about um, slaves and masters and marriage and so on in chapters 2 and 3. One of the sillier arguments for why we don't have to obey the detail of these verses today is the one that says that Peter is just, just being cultural in the instructions that he gives. The argument is that Peter is trying to help his readers win converts by conforming to the patriarchal values of the culture that he lives in. Whereas, of course, we live in much more enlightened times, so we don't need to make Christianity attractive that way. We make it attractive by conforming to the cultural values of our own society. So goes the argument. The problem with that, among other problems, is that Peter's ethic is not an ethic of cultural conformity at all. And Peter's missionary strategy is not a strategy of cultural conformity. In fact, his whole starting point at the baseline of this whole section of the letter is that fundamental assumption that we as Christians are aliens and strangers to our culture. That we are a kind of communal counterculture 
And the life that he urges us to live is not a life that fits or is popular or is applauded, but is a good life. A life that gives real blessing. A life that is beautiful in God's eyes. It's about objective goodness. As God measures The world may or may not see it that way. There's enough common grace still there, the residues of the creatorly grace of God leached through what's fundamentally being human, that there's still a deep sense in the human heart of attraction to what is genuinely good and beautiful. But there's enough distortion because of the fall that our moral sense and our aesthetic sense are fundamentally distorted as well. So Peter encourages us to have the expectation that we will find ourselves frequently misunderstood, frequently criticised, falsely accused. There will, of course, quick tangent comment, there will, of course, be times that because of the the terrible and tragic shortcomings of Christian obedience, some fundamental dysfunctions that have been part of the history of the church, there will be times, of course, when the criticisms of our culture and the judgments that are passed on the conduct of the church will be absolutely warranted and justified criticisms. Yep. We've had that terrible, necessary, salutary, Experience as, as as churches in Australia are passing through the Royal Commission um, into institutional responses to child sexual abuse um, over the last decade or so now. Um, and I wouldn't for a moment want to say that that experience was at its heart anything other than absolutely in accordance with the judgment of God on the terrible abuses that have happened in the name of Jesus by people who have fallen so horribly far short of the kind of holiness and justice and care that we are called to in Christ. So not every criticism is a misunderstanding. Not every secular judgment on the church is unwarranted. But much will inevitably be of that nature. We should never be surprised if we find ourselves, even when we are doing right, <coughs> accused of doing wrong. We'll find ourselves as followers of Jesus, hated because he was hated, criticised like he was criticised, slandered just as he was slandered, falsely accused just as he was falsely accused. He had committed no sin, there was no deceit found in his mouth, Peter reminds his readers a little later in this chapter. And yet, he was led off to judgment and subjected to terrible mistreatment. So Peter encourages his readers and us to have 
every expectation that at times we will be misunderstood, criticised, falsely accused. And yet he is so confident in the power of God's truth and so confident in the beauty of that truth that he encourages us also to expect that in the midst of that criticism, as he says, in the midst of that false accusation, in the midst of that misunderstanding and mischaracterization, some will see and will be attracted and will understand and will be drawn to worship God. So he writes, as we said, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The particular aspect of that which he goes on to address in verses 13 to 17 is the theme of submission and authority and honour. Uh, that opening word, submission, uh, is a word, or submit in, the, in the, uh, uh, the form that it takes here, is a word that occurs again and again through these middle chapters of 1 Peter. It's a word that gets numerous times, used numerous times in the New Testament uh, in reference to relationships in which one person has some measure of authority over or responsibility for another, ordered relationships where a charge or responsibility is given to one person in relation to another. Um, submission, then, is a response to another person's authority or responsibility that recognises it and upholds it and supports it. Submission is about a response to authority, which is why Peter goes on to finish the sentence, submit yourselves to every human authority. In all the web of human relationships in which we live our lives here on earth. There are all manner of different relationships in which God holds one person accountable for the welfare of another. Parents, husbands, governments, and so on. Charged with a, a form of responsibility and accountability for the flourishing and the welfare and the care and protection of another. And Peter says here that in all those relationships, our our basic stance as Christians ought to be one of submission. We rejoice in the fact that we live in a world in which there is responsibility and authority and order and care and accountability in the shape of relationships. This is part of the texture and the fabric of the world God has placed us in. We're not anarchists. We think that the basic problem with society is not authority and power, but sin and selfishness. And so we uphold authority and we recognise it and submit to it. We recognise, as Peter goes on to say, the capacity of human beings who hold authority to be terribly unjust and abusive at times in their exercise of it, but the fact of authority and power is part of the structure of our social existence that we give thanks for and rejoice in and submit to. The basic reason we do so Peter says, is because it's God's will. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. We submit ultimately not for their sake, but for God's. Which is why there's a sense, verse 15, in which we are ultimately free of all human authorities. We live as free people. There is no human authority that ultimately has the last word for us. 
They might make totalizing claims on us. Caesar might claim more than belongs to him of our heart and our allegiance and our worship. But God doesn't grant that kind of ultimate untrammeled authority to any human being. We submit to human authority structures not because they are our ultimate masters and overlords, not because they own our consciences or our minds, not because we have been seduced by propaganda or intimidated by power, no, because we have chosen by a free exercise of the will and obedience to the Lord Jesus to submit to them as servants of God. So Peter sums up verse 17, and this is just this beautifully, carefully, intricately, constru- intricately constructed little formula of basic first century Christian social relationships. Peter sums up verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Once again here, I hate to criticise the NIV because, again, I love it. I use it all the time. I think it's a great translation. They just sell us a tiny tiny bit short here. I don't know which committee looked after 1 Peter, but... (laughs) They worked on their best day when they got to 1 Peter. In the original... The first phrase and the last phrase of verse 17 have exactly the same verb, the verb to to honour. Honour everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. It's kind of a little arc from honour to honour. And the attitude that he was encouraging there, that combination of uses of of the word to honour, was as countercultural then as it is today, though in a different way, a very different way. In the first century, honour always went up. It was given to the great and the rich and the powerful. Society was a great hierarchical pyramid within the Greco-Roman world and the Roman imperial structure in particular. A great hierarchical period, a pyramid um, constructed of clients honouring patrons who in turn were the clients honouring patrons of their own and so on up to the great patron of patrons, the emperor. You honoured them because you were scared of them and you were obsequious in the respect that you paid to them. At least to their face. There was someone different behind their back. Peter says here, fear one person, God. In your human relationship, to give honour, but not the kind of not the kind of fear that belongs to God alone. Love the family of believers. That's the primary social unit that you and your family belong to. The family of believers. Love the family of believers. Honour the emperor. Yes, absolutely. He's a servant of God, put on the earth to do a job that God has given him to do. Honour that. Honour the emperor. And honour everyone else as well. Including the women and the slaves and the children and the poor. Honour everyone. Honour the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Follow the example of Jesus by treating all, even the little children, with honour. To be a little child's in the Greco-Roman world was a dangerous thing. 
Uh, particularly if you were born a girl, uh, if you were born unwanted, uh, you'd be exposed in the street, left to die. Either you would die, or someone would pick you up and take possession of you into a life of enslavement. Your life was worth very little as a little child in the ancient world. To be a woman in the ancient world was to be treated with a fundamentally different value from the value of the men of the ancient world. Uh, to be an enslaved woman as a vast proportion of the, the, the inhabitants of the empire were, uh, to be an enslaved woman was to be doubly intersectionally dishonoured. Your body had no honour in the social values of the, the, uh, the day, the pagan values of the day. It could be used by uh, anyone who wanted to, who could pay the money or who owned you. Jesus teaches it a fundamentally different way. That yes, honours the emperor and honours all. That's the first way that Peter encourages his readers to live differently, strangely, peculiarly in their human relationships because of their relationship with God. In place of that ugly mix of obsequiousness and fear and status anxiety, Peter says, honour everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. And then having spoken generally in verse 17, or verses 13 to 17, about submission and honour in relationships, Peter goes on in the next paragraph to apply it more specifically to one particular set of relationships in the household of the first century between slaves and masters. And then in the following paragraph, in chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, to a, another set of relationships between husbands and wives. We don't have the time this morning to explore either of those worked examples in the kind of detail that it would take to do them properly, um, although it would, of course, have been good if we had been able to. Uh, the beauty and the difficulty of living out these kind of things then as now is in the details here, um, more than in the abstractions and the generalities. But in the time that remains, I want to take us um, after those two worked examples of slaves, masters, um, and wives, husbands. Uh, I want to take us to the passage just after those two worked examples where Peter digs beneath the particularities of those particular relationships and responsibilities uh, and reminds us of the mindset and the motivations that underlie them both. And instead of picking up that passage at verse 13 as it says on the outline, I want to start as the Bible reading did uh, from verse 8. 1 Peter 3 verse 8, Peter writes, Finally all of you, all of you, having talked about uh, two particular subsets of the congregation, he now turns back to everyone and says, Finally, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insults. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and seek good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? 
But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. So much there that we could talk about all kinds of questions you may have about preaching in the spirit in the days of Ad, the spirits in captivity in the days of Noah. We'll talk about them um, over lunch if you want or something. <laughs> um, but I want to drill down to the centre of those paragraphs in the last few minutes of the talk this morning. Because at the centre of it all, at the heart of it, the secret of the peculiar lives we're called to as believers in Jesus is the peculiar hope that we have. The secret of the peculiar lives that we are called to as believers in Jesus is the peculiar hope that we have through the resurrection. It's like Noah's day. Yep. Um, tiny, tiny little minority in Noah's day who had heard and given heed to the word from God uh, about the destruction and renewal and salvation that were in the ark and the flood. And who heard and heeded and with the hope of the renewal of the world on the other side of the judgment, acted on that hope and entered into the ark and were saved. To us has come the same word of hope. The spirit of Jesus preached through Noah. The spirit of the same Jesus has spoken to us. And we have heard the word of renewal and resurrection and hope. It's based on his resurrection. Verse 21, verse 22. When we were baptised, we were baptised into resurrection hope. And that resurrection hope, that resurrection hope is fundamental to everything that makes us different in the lives that we live. See, in the end, there's something dead and dry and cultish and sectarian and ugly and repulsive about a peculiar, odd countercultural Christianity that is defined, as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, by a do not taste, do not handle, do not touch kind of ascetic legalism. If the only thing we have that makes us different is a set of legalistic traditions, that kind of harsh treatment of the body, uh, that kind of false spirituality, if that's all we have, then the difference that we have is a dead and deadening 
difference. But if the heart of what we have is not a law code, but a gospel, the very centre of what constitutes us as a people is the gospel of the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. If we have that peculiar hope, everyone around us saying, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And we are saying, I live this life that is no longer my own because my Saviour purchased it for me at his own expense and through his death. And I live this life knowing that I can cheerfully pour it out because this world and its possessions are not eternal and the city that is to come is my eternal home. When we live with that kind of home, what makes us different is scary beautiful, fearless, self-giving, generous, gladly sacrificial. We don't pat ourselves on the back at all the law-keeping we accomplish as if it makes us morally superior. That's not the engine that drives our holiness. It's not moral superiority or self-righteousness or pride that drives our holiness. Those things have the stench of hell about them. Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 4 as doctrine taught by demons. Now what drives our holiness, 1 Peter 1, is hope. And what gives us our hope is resurrection. Peculiar hope. It's hope, chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been born again into through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us who through we, we look forward to an imperishable inheritance. We've been born again into a into a indestructible hope. It's hope, chapter one, verse thirteen, that we are to set our minds on in a way that will transform the shape of how we live, so as to motivate us to pursue a strange countercultural holiness. It's hope, chapter three, verse fourteen, that will set us free from the fears and anxieties that drive and constrain the lives of the people around us. Do not fear what they fear. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Don't live little lives constrained by the fear of the opinion and the judgment of others. Don't live with the fear of the loss of possessions and privilege. Don't live anxious, timid, fearful lives. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Live lives that stand out because we do not fear the things they fear or fear the threats they make. And it's hope, chapter 3, verse 15, that will one way or another end up becoming visible. The invisible hope of the heart made manifest in the shape of how we live. Visible hope in the distinctive patterns and pursuits of our lives. I want to ask you this morning, can your colleagues and your neighbours and your families see your hope. Peter assumes here, he just presupposes as obvious that your hope will be visible. That you will live in all kinds of ways as people who have better and lasting possessions in heaven. As people who aren't imprisoned by fear of present opinion, present judgement, present reputation in this world that we'll be the people who live visibly, noticeably, tangibly, strangely, peculiarly 
for more than just this lifetime, for more than just this world's opinion, for more than just this world's possessions, that we will live as people whose lives are shaped by that peculiar hope. And that our neighbours, or some of them at least, will see, will see gospel birthed, hope shaped, countercultural generosity and freedom and fearlessness. That that will be the thing that stands out of us. In the midst of it, underneath, and making sense of it, shining through all the other particularities of Christian difference. That visible hope will be the things our neighbours notice. And that some, at least among them, will want to ask us the reason for it. Do you have hope? Resurrection hope. Is it visible to those who live around you? And are you ready to give a reason for that hope? None of this, of course, is easy to put into practice. So much of it is foreign to the instincts of our hearts and alien to the patterns of our society. That's what makes it hard. That's what makes it beautiful. We need to pray that God will give us eyes to see the beauty of it and determination to pursue it and live it out. And that he would work through us to help each other to do that so that our friends and our families and our neighbours will see something different in us so that even if they ridicule it and even if they accuse us of doing wrong that some would be drawn in the end to glorify God and to see his beauty partly through the way in which it has been refracted through our lives would you pray with me for that? Father we want to be a people of the resurrection and therefore a people of hope and therefore a people of holiness of visible, generous, merciful, fearless, beautiful holiness. So that those around us who see the way we live would want to ask questions about the hope that you have given us and listen to the words that you grant to us about Jesus and the resurrection that are the reason for our hope. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we let ourselves be constrained in timidity and fear. Uh, the little lives that we shrink our discipleship down to, intimidated by the opinion of others, for the way in which we cling still, even as Christians, to the possessions and privileges and positions of this world. For the anxieties we have about opinion and judgment and reputation. Set us free from those fears, we pray. Set us free to live boldly and generously and mercifully holy lives that are beautiful in their holiness so that many might stand with us on the last day, the day of visitation, and join with us in giving glory to you. Teach us to live those kinds of peculiar lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you.